Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me today is my co-host, Sophia. Hey, everyone. And today we have um, some exciting news. The Earth News Interviews team is expanding, and we have taken aboard some new students to help with writing and hosting. Two of them are with us now, Alex and Tina. Alex, uh, you first. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, what you're studying, and if there are any... uh, particular niche fields or something that you're interested in? Hi, uh, I'm Alex. I'm a fourth year uh, uh, geology specialist with a GIS minor. I also really think uh, science communication is something that's really important and cool. So uh, I thought I'd uh, get involved with the Earth News podcast. Um, Yeah, and I'm really excited to uh, learn more about it. Awesome. Cool. Um, And Tina, welcome to you as well. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about yourself as well? Give us a little summary. Uh, hey, thanks for having us on. I'm definitely very excited to like learn the ropes. So a bit about myself, I'm currently a third year undergrad doing a geology specialist and a minor in GIS. Uh, in terms of interest, I'm sort of still figuring it out. So I guess I'll see where life takes me. All right, cool. Well, we're very grateful to have you both uh, with us. Uh, last but not least, we have today's guest, uh, Dr. JJ Zanazi. He's a postdoc at the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. Hello, JJ, and thanks for lending us your expertise this evening. Oh, no, it's a real pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, thanks for being here. We're actually taking on a, uh, a new topic for us, again, going into the realm of astrophysics. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you study? Oh, so... Um, I study a lot of different things. I guess the main theme behind all the different things I study is that for one reason or the other, what I study is a little bit distorted. And the specific thing I study is how these different distortions and all these different astrophysical objects affect how they move. So for instance, if you, um, I study these things called uh, protoplanetary disks, which are disks of gas and dust around young stars, which planets form in. And I've done a lot of work figuring out how these things are tilted and become really elongated along with uh, warped. So the the entire thing looks like a wet sombrero hat um, due to different interactions between the disk itself and things within its environments. I also study these things called tile disruption events, disks. So when you point your telescope in the sky, and you, look, and you look at a really otherwise really quiet uh, center of a galaxy, and all of a sudden you see a really big flash of light, what people think actually happened was a star got really unlucky and got too close to that black hole, and it was actually ripped to shreds by that black hole. And all that, that, that stuff from the star actually went back onto the black hole and recreated. And what you're seeing is the light from all that stuff, which is slowly funneling into the black hole. And that's why you see that huge flash of light. Uh, I also study um, neutron stars and how they wobble. So these neutron stars a lot of times have these really strong magnetic fields. Um, And it's similar to when you throw a football in the air, the football kind of wobbles a little bit. Neutron stars do the same thing for the exact same reason. And Mm. I also study tides um, in different astrophysical objects. And so um, on Earth, uh, I'm sure you folks are familiar with tides. Um, 
on Earth, what happens is if you're at the beach, you have high tide and low tide. And the reason why that's true is because the moon slowly pulls um, the ocean and there, it causes two bulges in the ocean, which follow the location of the moon. Um, but it turns out if you follow how that those bulges go with time, they slosh in the earth and the sloshing motion dissipates energy and the long-term consequences is actually the earth is slowly spinning down and it's, the days get longer and the moon is actually moving further away from the earth. And I, I study in addition to um, things in the solar system, how uh, planets undergo these same types of sloshing motions. I also study how stars undergo these sloshing motions and how that affects different things within all these different systems. Um, so I, I kind of have my uh, fingers spread uh, through a lot of different uh, <laughs> things, but the, the main thing I, I seem to really be interested in is whenever these things are not the normal shape that they have, how that affects the different dynamics and the systems themselves. That's, that's great. That sounds like how I would probably choose my subject. Just all these different, somewhat related, yet very impactful, like at least when it comes to investigating you know, these things affect greatly the things around them. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I wonder, uh, how did you get interested in this astrophysics? Were you, what was your academic academic journey like? Did you always kind of want to go into this? Well, so I was really lucky in that my family all had a kind of teaching and academic background. So my father, or sorry, my grandfather um, was an engineer for the, the Air Force um, and he like became a professor in Arizona, both my m mother and my father, uh, my, my father taught meteorology, my mother taught chemistry for a long time, both at the high school, um, and my mother eventually became a professor at the community college. Um, and so in my, my uncles, um, my uncle also uh, did a lot of stuff related to just physics and engineering. And so I, um, I was really, really fortunate to grow up with a lot of people just right around me who were all kind of interested in academics and stuff. Um, and this really influenced me um, a lot. And I, uh, growing up, was always kind of interested in science. Um, and it kind of, I was eventually funneled into astrophysics. Um, it's, yeah, so I, I, do you want me to tell, I guess, more of the story? I, I don't know. It's a, I, I feel uncomfortable whenever I'm talking too much. I, I love questions and stuff. <laughs> I feel more comfortable when I don't have to ask as many questions. So keep on okay. going if you feel like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I'll, I'll keep on going. Okay. So. Um, yeah, when I was in high school, I uh, wasn't a, a super great student, but I was really interested in just doing science outside of the classroom. And some of the things I was really fortunate, um, especially considering my really lackluster grades, to be part of this program, which paired up um, high school students with people working um, at Arizona State University. And I remember for this thing, I did like three different science projects. The first one was I uh, looked at how so back um, in the early uh, 2000s, people were still really interested in biofuels as being an alternative to um, just gasoline, uh, putting uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, and I investigated how these, these special algae, which could potentially um, generate all this fuel, uh, were affected by the different light and how they different grew. And I also did um, this, this really fun thing. So it's, um, So if you just take if you go into your car um, and you have one of those heater things, which works to heat up your cup, um, what happens is on, the reason why you have that heater is there's this um, there's a special device underneath where if you put electricity in, it generates a hot spot and a cold spot. Um, and so the, the hot spot is what heats up your, your cup of, of coffee or whatever in your car and keeps it warm. 
Um, and the cold spot just goes into the car, so you don't actually see it. But it turns out, um, if you just do this, if you take that thing out of the car, instead of hooking it up to a source of electricity, you instead hook it up to a battery and you apply a hotspot and a cold spot, you can actually generate electricity from one of these things. Um, and so the, for the science project I did um, in high school, I, I just came up with the idea of, well, let's just put this thing on a lake, right? Um, so you, you, the, the hot spot is, is Arizona is really, really hot. Um, so you just p- get a big piece of sheet of metal, you put it on the top, um, you put the little gadget in under it, and then you put something that sucks up the water below, and then you have a little device that generates electricity. But the thing I think that really, really sold me is I did the science project looking for planets outside the solar system. And uh, yeah, so I, I used this telescope in like New Mexico um, to look for planets. Um, but because I was in high school and I had no idea what I was doing, I totally messed up the data analysis. So I thought I found a planet when there wasn't one. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, I, I didn't find a planet, but like the, the experience itself was really cool to me. Just pointing a telescope at the sky and getting sun rays. And eventually when I got to university, I, I remember when I first got to university, I absolutely really disliked math. And then my first year, all of a sudden, um, I, all my opinions on math, like totally switched. I just fell in love with math. And I, uh, like, I, I almost became actually a mathematician. Um, and I did all these different study abroad programs, um, like some in, uh, doing math just really intensely, but I always kind of wanted for, for some reason felt like I really wanted to do astronomy. Um, and I, just circled back to theory because it, it kind of uh, melded my love of astronomy and my love of math, everything together. Um, and that mm-hmm. kind of shaped what I uh, do today. So, yeah. Right. So it was really like learning through experience and figuring out what worked, what didn't for you that kind of made you click with, uh, with astrophysics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, today we're kind of cycling back to, to your study area, which is at least to me, it sounds like you study like the oddballs in, uh, in astrophysics, literally, you know, planets and stars. Um, so in science, when things don't act like they're supposed to, a new theory is tested to explain that odd phenomenon. And in this way, ideological paradigms explaining physical phenomena are continuously updated to fit with uh, new observations and kind of this feedback mechanisms which makes science such an exciting field to be in. And I think that JJ, you kind of attested to that. Um, and so today we're, we're talking to you about solar systems, but not our own. So must, most of what we assume about outer space, so past our own Milky Way galaxy, is based on um, observations we have made about our home solar system. So for example, even the naming conventions that um, astronomers and astrophysicists like yourself use to describe exoplanets are based on planets in our very own solar system. So if, uh, if our listeners remember the episode with uh, Diana Valencia, we talked about mini Neptunes and super Earths. And in this episode, you'll hear about sub Neptunes and warm Jupiters. So what happens when exoplanets behave differently than planets in our own solar system, despite having the same general physical forces like gravity acting on them? So astrophysicists found just uh, like a system just like that, almost 900 light years away. So Dean uh, and JJ, please take it away with, this, with the paper summary. All right. Thank you, Sophia. So this is the first time we've actually gotten into the formation of stars and their planetary disks um, on the podcast. So let's first walk through what we think we know about the formation of of these stars and planets from nebulas. So we, we start in a nebula, which is full of the remnants of, of some previous star, maybe. And then, JJ, what, what begins to happen? 
Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so you start with a nebula, right? And it's this big cloud of gas and dust. Um, and I remember reading a, a book by Carl Sagan, and he explained it really nicely. So um, the, this thing has a little itty bitty bit of rotation. Um, and because it has a little bit of itty bitty rotation, um, the forces felt on, by everything in the cloud of gas and dust is not the same, right? If you have something rotating, right? And you draw an arrow in the direction which is rotating and you're in kind of the middle of that arrow. If you're um, in the center of the cloud, you feel the rotation a lot more than if you're at the top of the cloud um, where the thing is rotating, right? So if you're, if you're on a ball that's rotating really fast, if you're at the top of the ball, um, the direction which it's rotating, you don't really feel the rotation. But if you're at the equator of the ball where it's rotating really fast, all of a sudden you feel a whole lot. It's the, the same reason why um, all these centrifuges and stuff work the way they do. Um, and what happens because the particles in this cloud feel all these different forces is the stuff at the top just collapses because there's nothing supporting it against gravity from the center of the star, which is at the center of this big cloud of gas and dust and stuff. Well, the stuff on the outside stays supported by this rotation. And because you have this difference in force, what you end up forming is one of these things called a protoplanetary disk. And uh, these, these protoplanetary disk things uh, are the main, uh, we, we know now that these are the main places in which planets were formed. Right. Okay. So, and does this tie in with the conservation of angular momentum at all? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this, this, this thing of this rotating cloud of gas, gas and dust, I mean, it has to conserve angular momentum. And so one of the kind of takeaways from the, the paper that you're going to be discussing, the expectation which people thought when everything formed is because, like you said, angular momentum is conserved. If you have planets forming this disk of gas and dust, um, they, these planets should be rotating in the exact same direction as the direction the star is rotating. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, yeah, so like, like you said, the, the, the simple expectation, and this is actually is true in the solar system. If you measure the direction our sun is rotating, it's within seven degrees of the directions the planets around the sun are orbiting the sun. Right, and that's that's usually the case from, from the early days until a little bit later, maybe. It's not terribly uncommon, though, to have some bodies in the system deviate from that plane, though, right? Especially more distant bodies like dwarf planets and asteroids. I'm thinking about, like, Pluto here. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in our own solar system, absolutely. So in our own solar system, the, the planets themselves all ha lie within, like, a few degree inclinations with respect to one another. But if you go really, really far away from the planets um, and, and things like the Oort cloud and the, the asteroid belt and stuff like that, all of a sudden the, the inclinations are all scrambled. And what, what's happening is all these different small and large gravitational interactions, they work to kind of scramble the system and excite all these different inclinations um, because all of these, these planets and, and things are basically bumping into each other and uh, getting excited. Okay, so, but this particular star system, uh, which was discovered, is is especially weird. Can you can you lay out why it was so so weird to see? Okay, yeah, yeah. So so the reason why it's weird is the the reason which you um, just mentioned because the naive expectation for planet formation is that the star should be rotating the same direction as the direction the planets are rotating because you expect angular momentum to be conserved. Um, however, when astronomers started actually looking, trying to test this hypothesis, 
what they did is they used what's called the Rostrum-Glofflin effect um, to measure the direction the star was rotating with respect to the direction the planets rotating. So um, to understand the Rostrum-Glofflin effect, um, you need to understand the, the Doppler effect. So, I mean, if you're next to a train track and the train is coming towards you, you hear a higher frequency. Um, when the train goes away from you, you hear lower frequency. And what's happening is as the train is moving towards you, um, you hear a higher uh frequency of the sound just because of the way the sound waves travel. And when the train is going away from you, you hear a lower frequency of the sound because the train is moving away from you now. And it turns out light does the exact same thing. So if you have a beam, of, if you have something which is emitting light, which is going towards you, you see a bluer light. And when the thing is moving away from you, you see redder lights compared to what the flashlight or whatever, which is moving towards you normally emits. And it turns out the stars do the same thing. So if you're looking at a star, and it's rotating in one direction. The stuff which is rotating in your direction is blue shifted, and the stuff which is rotating away from your direction is red shifted. And so, if you if you were to kind of that is so precise. Yeah, I know it's incredible. It's incredible that astronomers, observational astronomers, are able to do this. Yeah, and so what what happens is like if you look at the star, and you can basically imagine it as kind of painted in two colors. So the, the part that's moving towards you is blue because it's moving towards you. And the other part that's moving away from you is red because it's moving away from you. And when the planet moves in front of the star, it blocks one of the portions first. And so, so, so say if the planet is rotating the same direction of the star, um, what happens is it's going to slowly cover up the blue part first. And so you see a red star and then it covers up the red part first and then you see a blue star. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's eloquently explained. Yeah, so that's that's the method. But it turns out for this system, it was, you see the opposite thing. So first you see the star become red, or sorry, you see the star become first blue, which means it's covering up the red part. And then you see the star become red, which means the star, the planet is covering up the blue part, which means that actually the star is rotating in the opposite direction as the planets which are orbiting the star. And with this, you can actually figure out something very strange happened in this dynamical system, which is one of the things uh, that I study. So what is what are some of the hypotheses about how this this could have happened? Is it like an early thing? Is it a later thing? Yeah, so that's that's an excellent, excellent question. So for a very, very long time, the main explanation for how you form these really scrambled planetary systems with these planets orbiting in these very strange directions with respect to the direction the star is rotating, is that um, under the system's gravitational evolution, what happened was these all these planets basically were bumping around each other, kind of having this little mosh pit. And then all of a sudden, um, one of them was just kind of put on this really, really long elongated orbit. Um, and because tidal dissipation, what what so the sloshing motion I kind of mentioned before, the main effect of the sloshing motion is to make the really strange elongated orbit of one of the really unlucky planets that got kind of pushed into this strange orbit um, very much not elongated. Um, and after it's not elongated anymore, what you have formed is this planet really, really close to its star, but rotating in a very different direction with respect to the star because you basically had this crazy mosh pit uh, to create this planet in the first place. Um, so this is the leading theory. Actually, this was developed here at the University of Toronto um, by uh, Yenchen Wu, um, along with uh, Norm Murray, um, both are professors. The first is uh, Yenchen Wu, she's a professor at the, um, Depart in the Department of Astronomy, and Norm Murray, he's a professor at the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics. 
what I worked on as a graduate student is a very different th theory, which um, happens while the planets are still forming. So instead of the, the, the kind of mosh pit creating um, all these strange orbits from all the planets, what instead you have is while the planets are still forming in the, in the protoplanetary disk, a distant star, a star that's kind of far away, is kind of tugging on this disk right? Um, because of the gravitational interaction between the disk and the, the distant star. And this gentle tugging motion slowly changes the direction that the planets are orbiting with respect to the star and the direction that it's spinning. Um, and what I found out is how, what I, what I worked on a lot as a PhD student is figuring out how this tugging process works to scramble the direction the planets are orbiting with respect to the star. Um, in this system, it turns out the best explanation um, is the latter process. So reason why the latter process, this the, the, the gentle disk tugging mechanism is much favored over the, the planet mosh pit mechanism is the, uh, the two planets, they don't have these crazy orbits. They, um, they don't have these very elongated orbits. Both of them have nearly circular orbits. Um, and also the plant, if you measure the inclinations between the two planets, they have very, very, very small inclinations with respect to one another. And so it suggests that the way the planets formed is actually a very, like they had a much nicer uh, childhood compared to the, the mosh pit planets, um, where they, they kind of grow up in this nice little nursery. Um, and really far away from the two planets, um, you see a star. And it's not clear exactly the, the, the particular parameters of the star, how inclined it is, but we do know there's a star and we can estimate the distance of the star within the planet. And it turns out if you run the simulations of this thing, it's actually very unlikely that the system didn't get scrambled um, in the way that I worked on as a PhD student um, um, and, and proposed. So, so it'd be bad not to mention also the other uh, people that were involved in kind of the gentle disk tugging. I was, I was by far not the per first person to work on this. Um, so the first person to, to work on this was Constantine Batygin at Caltech. Um, he's the first person to propose this along with uh, Fred Adams at the University of Michigan. Um, and my previous advisor, Professor Dong Lai at Cornell University, um, he also worked on this in, in great detail, um, along with Chris Spaulding at uh, Princeton University, who's a postdoc there. So I was by far not the first person, but the one thing I studied was how the formation of the plants themselves in this thing affects this gentle tugging motion. And over what period of time is this tugging motion going on? Because uh, the way I'm conceptualizing it in my head is like, stars dancing in in a in a galaxy they kind of go up and down up, up through the plane right as they're going around the the their way around the galaxy and they go up and down over what kind of period of time is this like neighboring star like adjusting things yeah so um the, the period of time is like about i think it's about a hundred thousand years is typically the time it takes for the disc to basically wobble one time and, and it actually turns out the physics behind it. So the way that the binary acts is actually very similar to what you have if you just put a coin on your desk and you just start it rotating. Because what happens is the, the rotation of the, of the disk, that's what keeps it kind of going in the same motion. Just like if you have put the coin on your desk and you start spinning, the rotation of that coin also causes the, the coin to kind of stay stable. But as the pull of gravity um, for, the, for the coin, the pull of gravity slowly causes the coin to slowly tilt towards the desk. desk. Um, in a similar way, the pull of gravity of the disk due to the star causes the disk to kind of wobble. And so it turns out the wobbling motion of a coin on your desk is exactly the same physics 
as the physics of a protoplanetary disk being tugged by one of these distant stars. That's that's much shorter period of time than I had pictured. In geology, everything's like millions, tens of millions of years, hundreds yeah. of millions of years. <laughs> I, I don't really think of these things, yeah. Well, you have to be a little bit quicker, because so, it turns out planets form in about 1 to 10 million years. So in order for this stuff to happen, it's got to happen actually pretty quick um, compared to the timescale which planets form. It's funny that you kind of go back to, you know, just a simple scenario or a simple experiment of, you know, spinning a coin on a desk. And I find that it's, it's funny because I kind of relate that to some of the summary articles that you sent us as like a background reading. And I feel like I, I don't know how you feel about them. I mean, you said you sent it to us for background reading, which I really appreciate it because some of the, the language in the actual paper that you co-authored was, was, was dense. So it was nice to have the background reading. But um, in one of those summary papers, it said that the disc, like, quote unquote, flipped. Yeah. And I was wondering what this meant exactly and whether you feel like that's like an appropriate word for what actually happened. Yeah, so maybe maybe disk flipping is not quite right. So what, what happens is the star definitely flipped. So 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 there's actually, um, when, when I talk about the, the disk kind of wobbling, that's not actually the total story. So the um, the, the, the disk wobbling motion stuff, um, that's, that's basically the same physics as your coin rolling on the desk. But... The star itself, it's feeling a lot of things while this disc is basically wobbling. So the the, uh, the star um, feels the gravitational tug of the disc, and the star feeling gravitational tug of the disc causes the star to also wobble um, as the disc is wobbling. And due to really complicated um, dynamical interactions, which I uh, don't have, like it's 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 very much like out of the scope of the podcast. What happens is. Um, as the disc is slowly evolved, what first happens is the star kind of stays tightly tugged due to the disc because the the tugging of the disc from the star is really, really, really strong. And so the, the, the star just wants to kind of hang around the disc the entire time and just do what the disc is doing. But at some point, what happens with these systems is they lose mass. And as they lose mass, this kind of tugging strength slowly decreases until at one point the star can't follow the disc anymore. And when that happens... Uh, what happens is the the star can sometimes actually flip in the opposite direction as the disc um, when when this whole thing is going on. So, kind of just going off that that last question, most of the research is usually like observations. So, I'm just wondering, like, how is quantitative data usually like connect uh, collected in astrophysics? Yeah, yeah. So, so for disks. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of different ways in which you can do quantitative measurement. So for instance, the, the Rosser-McLaughlin effect, which I talked about. So if you have like this tube of gas, um, it emits at very certain colors um, if, it's, if it's excited. So for instance, like neon has a very specific color. And the reason why is if you look at all the little neon um, electrons, uh, the electrons can only jump to certain locations. And when they jump, they emit a very certain frequency of light. Um, and you can use this um, in stars themselves to figure out how it's rotating. So this, this, this red and blue thing that I was mentioning, what's actually happening is that you have very specific molecules in the star um, that are kind of jumping around, that are excited by the energy of the star, and they're jumping around. And normally, when you don't know that they're jumping around, they emit. Um, uh, so, so the the color of a light beam is related to how long the light beam wiggles are. And so, if you have a shorter um, wiggle space between one, um, as the the light beam kind of goes through space, 
if you have a shorter distance between the wiggles, you have a higher frequency of light, and that's a higher uh, a, a color that's bluer. Well, if you have uh, wiggles which are further apart, um, it's redder. Um, and because this jumping process emits very, 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 very specific frequencies of light, what happens is um, when this stuff is moving towards you, you can actually see uh, that the, the frequency is just a teeny bit higher than it normally is. And when it's moving away from you, it's just a teeny bit lower. And you use this to actually measure how the, the star itself is rotating. And this, this, this applies to disks as well. So um, disks also have stuff in them that, that emit at very specific frequencies. And when it's moving away from you, it looks a little bit redder. And when it's moving towards you, it's looking a little bit bluer. And you can actually use this to figure out what the direction of the disk is with respect to the direction you're looking at it. Um, and this is used all over astrophysics as well. And it's a very, very powerful tool to constrain all these different environments. Um, and yeah, so this is, yeah, this is just a, one example of a different way. You can actually quantitatively figure out the different um, ways in which these systems are, are formed and how they're rotating and their geometries and all this stuff. That just boggles the mind to me. Like, but the distance between us and that star and then like the diameter of that star. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so different. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's insane that we can do this stuff. Yeah, so these 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 stars are so far away from us and, and compared to how the distance is, they're teeny tiny. Um, but, it, but it turns out because the planet's even smaller, you use the planet basically um, hogging the spotlight in front of the star to, to figure out how the, the system is oriented with respect to the direction that you're looking. Um, I'd like to ask a question that sort of uh, is related to what uh, Tina asked and what you just talked about. So um, one thing that I like about geology is how relatively easy it is to sort of get, hey, get your hands on what you're studying. You know, it's kind of like if you really loved cheese and then you were lucky enough to be born on a planet made of cheese, that's kind of like how being a geologist is. If there's rocks everywhere, I can step outside my house and pick up a rock. Um, so as an astrophysicist uh, who's studying these things that are just so unimaginably far away, uh, do you ever get envious of that? Like, do you wish that you could just go see the protoplanetary disk, uh, like, you know, just hop in a car and just go drive to it? Like... Uh, yeah. Or do you think there's like an equal thrill in just being able to observe these phenomena at all? Like just the fact that we can even see this stuff and it's so far away, is that, does that drive you? And is that what you're passionate about? Or is it just theorizing about them? Like, Yeah, so um, that, that's, a, that's a really, really good point. Um, yeah, so I think what really gets me excited is, yeah, the, the fact that it's so crazy and it's so different, but it's still... Um, something that you can visualize and kind of see everything kind of wobbling and stuff. So it just it just makes me very excited. Um, I, I, I don't know um, if this is uh, something common, but for, for me at least, it just makes me excited that it's that it's so hard to actually visualize and it, it, make, it make kind of gets me up in the morning to figure out how these things um, kind of are wobbled by their environments and they're so crazy and extreme and stuff. Um, and, and just one of the really cool things that I took away from math is that um, you, you just start off with a simple set of assumptions and then you can come up with like all of these crazy different worlds, which are just really, really hard to imagine. But because the, the logic and the math, which led to it um, is, is all solid, this stuff has to be true. And the, the, like just trying to actually kind of wrap your head around stuff that's really hard to imagine that um, that's, that's what really, um, really excites me. I do try um, to, to come up with and understand it and, 
figure out like real world examples and things of ways of relating these things um, so that they're actually understandable. But the fact that they're so weird and crazy, that's, that's, I, I get really excited by it. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah, it. definitely. Like the challenge is something that really entices you for sure. I remember in grade 12 uh, physics uh, yeah. for our kind of final project, we did uh, these things called uh, Fermi problems. And uh, yeah. Uh, I thought that was really neat. And uh, our, uh, my teacher would just give us a really like crazy sounding question and be like, just make up a series of assumptions and try and figure it out. Like, I think one was how many molecules of air do you think that you've breathed that Isaac Newton also breathed? And it's just like, just do some physics, do some basic calculations to kind of make a guess about that. And I thought that was a really cool way of thinking about it. So I do love being able to just like see geology up close. Like, I do definitely think that astrophysics is, is so cool how you can just make these, uh, make these, uh, measurements and just uh, learn about things that are so far away. So I think that's really awesome. Yeah, no, that's that's really, really cool. Yeah, and, and Fermi's problems, Fermi order of magnitude stuff, that's like bread and butter of astrophysics. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's it's really, really cool. And, and also the, the things, that the very familiar things here on Earth, a lot of times those also have a lot of applications outside um, the Earth and the solar system um, and stuff like that. So it turns out, for, for instance, one of the things I study are these crazy things called neutron stars. Um, but it turns out that the physics des describing the neutron stars is very, very similar to the physics that describes earthquakes. So it turns out the way people actually went ahead and understood these neutron stars is they actually went to geologists and geophysicists and were like, okay, so you guys figured out, you folks figured out how earthquakes happen, the conditions which earthquakes can happen. And it turns out the same exact things happen in neutron stars because they have like these weird tenuous kind of jelly-like crusts that sometimes when um, the neutron star is rotating too fast or too slow, it breaks. Um, and you can actually see the neutron star change how fast it's rotating and all this other stuff because, um, because of these really crazy catastrophic earthquakes that happen all across the, the neutron star. Um, so yeah, it's like, like the, the, the familiar things kind of like that you're familiar with on earth, just get stretched to these crazy extremes when you just look out outside the solar system. And like, there's kind of the, the tad bit that, um, if you can kind of think it happens somewhere in the universe, it'll be happening and stuff. And so it's, a uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's really exciting to, to just be kind of permanently amazed by everything that's going on. If I can give the uh, the Sagan answer to that, it would be something about like how there's iron in our blood and there's calcium in our teeth and we're awash in the stardust and the protoplanetary disks already. So we kind of have our hands in the science anyway. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, for one insane example. So um, it. So the Enrico Ramirez Ruiz is a professor at the University of Santa, uh, California, Santa Cruz, just gave a really great talk uh, at um, U of T on Monday. And one of the things he talked about is a lot of the really, really heavy elements in the solar system. Um, you can actually figure out that the main way those things are created are these two dead stars, these things called neutron stars, which I study, just totally slamming into each other. And this slamming process generates all these new elements which populate um, the universe. So... Like in addition to supernova being the remnants of dead stars, you're also uh, the remnants of two neutron stars having a really bad day with one another and just. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So I guess just to, to kind of to, to finish off the, the the paper questions, what's coming up next for for this discovery? Oh yeah, so this is basically the first one of these systems that was discovered. So this is one of the first uh, systems which strongly supports the idea that 
what's happening is that this, this gentle tugging process does affect the orbits of planetary systems. And so what Simon, Professor Simon Albrecht, uh, uh, he's a professor um, at Aarhus University in Denmark. He's currently submitting proposals to look for more of these ty different types of systems using the same methods to figure out um, in systems which we know there's a bunch of planets, which are kind of more or less uh, in nice little orbits around the stars which they, which they rotate, um, how these planets how these planets are rotating with respect to the star. And the, these planets also need to have a star really far away, which is tugging their orbits. And so it, right, right now, the main question is figuring out how common this process is in the solar system to shape the orbits of different planets, which we see. All right. Well, oh, cool. um, let's uh, do the wrap up questions now. We've, we've Time has really flown. Oh, we've made it to the end. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe how much time has flown. So if I, I want to know. Just like the formation. <laughs> <laughs> or sorry, of a planet. Very fast. Yeah. Um, if you could solve one scientific mystery, whether it's uh, in astrophysics or a totally unrelated field or whatever, um, what mystery would that be? Uh, I think the biggest one, at least in planet formation, is just figuring out how these planets form, right? So, so we actually still don't. Um, so, for instance, the we we don't know how these grains kind of stick together to for, go from small pebbles to really really big rocks. So, being able to actually pin down the main process in which they, they go from the small pebbles to big rocks. That'd be very, very exciting. Yeah, I'd be really excited to do that as well. Yeah. I mean, we kind of know how, how it happens with Earth, or at least there's there's theories, but, you know, if, is it different for, for other planets? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, people still don't know. So basically what happens is if you if you smash two meter-sized rocks together, they all, all break up. Um, and figuring out why the rocks go from really small little pebbles to, to things the size of the Earth we still don't understand how it just gets past the, the barrier of um, when you have kind of two big meter-sized rocks and you throw them against each other, they, they're supposed to break up and stuff. And so we actually still don't know what happens when you go from the really small stuff to the big stuff. I'll be looking out for that discovery oh. by JJ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, folks. Uh, and then uh, I guess my, my question is, uh, what brings you optimism today in uh, in the world, whether it's in the world of science or, or in general? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think uh, just in general how involved people are in terms of social issues and um, politics and things. People are much more um, vocal and willing to kind of stand up to change the, the world in a better way um, than they were like 10 or 20 years ago. And just seeing how uh, people all around the world are, are actually uh, demanding that things like climate change and um, racial equity and things like this uh, are actually addressed. That that gives me a lot of hope that that things in the future are going to be a lot better for everybody. Yeah. All right, I, I, cheers to that. Um, so, thank you for that, um, Sophia. Would you like to give us the episode quote for today? Yes, I would, and that kind of it goes really well uh, with uh, with what you said, JJ, about what brings you optimism. So, kind of thinking for the future uh, of humanity. And this one's uh, this one's from a book by Toby Ord, who's a uh, Australian uh, ethical philosopher, and he uh, quotes Seneca. So it's kind of a quote in a quote. Uh, but yeah, so Seneca, uh, who was a Roman philosopher in 65 CE, said this. The time will come when diligent research over long periods will bring to light things which now lie hidden. A single lifetime, even though entirely devoted to the sky, would not be enough for the investigation of so vast a subject. 
And so this knowledge will be unfolded only through long successive ages. There will come a time when our descendants will be amazed that we did not know things that are so plain to them. Let us be satisfied with what we have found out and let our descendants also contribute something to the truth. Many discoveries are reserved for ages still to come when memory of us will have been effaced. Love it. That's a beautiful quote. So I thought, yeah, I thought that went well with, uh, with, yeah, well, with our discussion kind of, you know, standing on the, on the footsteps of giants and people who have, you know, made previous uh, discoveries and, and will make discoveries uh, as time goes on. And, and yeah, so you're adding yeah. to that. That was like a Newton, yeah. right? Uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. I think that was a Newton quote. Nice. Man, we have a lot of good quote, quote unquote. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much, JJ, for joining us today. Uh, we had a fantastic time kind of going into uh, into detail about this really kind of oddball of a system uh, that exists in the world. So it's uh, that exists in our in outer space. So thank you so much for for lending us your uh, your expertise. It was an incredible th- pleasure. Thank you both Sophia and Dean for inviting me here. It was it was a real, real pleasure to be able to talk with you folks. And uh, thank you to our listeners as well. We hope to have you tune in in two weeks from now with a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no rock unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 